Today's scripture reading is coming from Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. And you'll find that in your bulletin on page 9 and on the screen above. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who he had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I, uh, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And he, the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Dave. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your uh, Trinity Kids Bulletin uh, earlier. You can grab that now. And there's a spot on there to, to jot down these three things that I want you to listen for. The first is this, uh, smoked meat. Uh, secondly, wedding reception. And then thirdly, all the wrong people. So smoked meat, wedding reception, and all the wrong people. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look at this parable together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would attend to us now by your spirit and that you would enable us to see Jesus, to behold him in all of his beauty and glory. Pray that we would be drawn to him, that we might taste of his love and grace for us today. And we pray it in his name, amen. On most, uh, most Saturdays in the summer, I, uh, I ride with a cycling group. And uh, so there are a few different general routes that we take. Most of the time though, uh, we head south. Uh, it's a good way to, to get into these rural roads without a whole lot of traffic pretty quickly. But on the way back, uh, that always takes us by this spot uh, on Alta Mesa that, that's just east of Hewlin. So a little bit there in, in South Fort Worth. And, and one of my absolute favorite parts of our ride is going by this house where almost every single Saturday there's a guy who opens his gate, his gated fence out onto, uh, onto Alta Mesa who is there with his smoker going, okay? And it's almost every single Saturday and so the, the, one of the reasons that I love this so much is that it comes at a point in the ride where everybody's exhausted and we are, we're, we're both literally and uh, figuratively like imagining all of these sorts of foods that, that we're gonna be eating. And then you come around this corner and you're hit with this aroma that is proof not only of God's existence, but uh, of his deep, deep love for humanity. And it happens all at once. And it's this thing that you can predict every single Saturday. And so uh, you, you get this smell and you know 
that what is gonna happen at that house that afternoon can only be described as a feast, right? And every part of you longs for it. You wanna be a part of that feast. And so here's what's so amazing about the Bible. That, that image of longing for a feast is actually this image that God uses over and over again in the Bible to describe what life with him and his kingdom is really like. And it's all over the Bible. We saw one of those examples uh, in Isaiah 25 in our Old Testament lesson. Here's another example of this though from, uh, from Amos 9.13. This is where Amos is describing the coming of the Messiah. And he describes it as a day when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus in John 2 goes to this wedding at Cana and performs his first miracle, which is turning a whole lot of water into a whole lot of wine. And he continues to use this image of feasting and of eating with him. And this is especially true in Luke's gospel. And it's true in this passage that we're looking at today, where life in the kingdom is described as this great banquet. This, this banquet that your heart and whole person longs for. And I think that's part of the reason that image is so powerful because every one of us knows what that feels like. To long to be a part of a feast like that, to smell the smoked meat, to smell what your house smells like on Thanksgiving morning and you want that meal. And so this is what God is inviting you into. This is what he's welcoming you into, a life with him that can only be described as a feast. Here's the thing though, the way that that invitation, the way that that welcome goes out into the world is through us. It's through the church. We are the people through whom this welcome is gonna be extended to our friends and our neighbors so that through our life together, our friends and our neighbors are supposed to get a foretaste of that meal a foretaste of that final banquet that we'll get to enjoy. And so what I wanna look at today uh, in this final week of this three-week series uh, that, that we're, where we've been looking at the welcome of the gospel is this week extending that welcome to our friends and our neighbors. And if you'll flip to the back of your bulletin briefly, I wanna show you a couple things there. One uh, is our mission statement. So this is who we are as a church. This is, a, this is why we exist as a church. Trinity exists to embrace embody and extend the redemptive message of Jesus to the people and places of Fort Worth and beyond. But then I want you to look below that to, the, to our core commitments. So the, these are the, uh, our, our commitments as a church that, that shape how we go about carrying out our mission. So look at the uh, one second to the last. Trinity is a gospel-centered church committed to following Jesus by extending the welcome of the gospel in word and deed. So what I wanna to do today is look at how we do that. Uh, one quick note here before we jump in. Um, there are times where maybe you hear a sermon or a lecture or a talk on a particular passage of scripture and it has such a deep impact on you that, that every time you read that passage from there on, you think of, the, the, uh, of something from that talk. Uh, this passage uh, is like that for me. Uh, back in 2014, I heard a great talk on this passage by uh, a guy named Greg Thompson. And, uh, and so these three headings that, that are gonna be the points of the sermon are from him. And it's just now the way that I see this passage over and over again. So I wanna give credit to him for that. So uh, here's what we're gonna see. In order to extend this welcome of the gospel, we need to see three things from this parable. And the, the first is that God is a yearning host. Secondly, that the world and our neighbors 
are desired guests. And then thirdly and finally, that the church is a gathering servant. So God is a yearning host, the world are desired guests, and then the church is the gathering servant. So first, uh, God is a yearning host. And if you see, uh, you see this right at the beginning in these first couple of verses. So you have this man who's throwing a huge banquet, and then it says later on in verse 23 that what he wants more than anything else is for his house to be filled. He wants people to come to this huge banquet that he's throwing, and what Jesus wants us to see is that this is a picture of God himself. And that picture of God as this yearning host is a thread that runs throughout the entire Bible, and it actually goes all the way back to the beginning as the very reason that God created humanity in the first place. He did so in order that his people would dwell with him, in order that his people would feast with him, to enjoy him and the world that he made. But what we know happens in Genesis 3 is that rather than living into and enjoying that feast with God, what Adam and Eve did instead was to reject that invitation. And what they did instead was to go try to be filled at these other tables and seek life apart from him. And, and as a consequence, and a judgment for their sin, Adam and Eve are exiled from God's presence. Here's something, though, that, that's so important that we need to see. That didn't change God's desire to eat with his people. His desire to feast with you didn't change. And the rest of the Bible is really about God pursuing his people in this relentless way and inviting them back, calling them back into this great banquet. Let me just give one example of this from the Old Testament. So in Exodus, uh, where, where uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, to release them from slavery, this is how they say it. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And that continues throughout the Old Testament, all of these other meals, these covenant meals that are shared together. And then it culminates, of course, in God sending his son in order to make it possible. So the, the point is this, God is still a yearning host. And that's what you get in this parable. So the, the, the welcome comes in the form of this literal invitation that gets sent out. And there's one thing we need to see about this is that invitations in the ancient world were a really big deal. And they were a big deal for a couple of reasons. One was really practical. Um, you needed to get a head count for your feast. And so it says in verse 16 that there was this first round of invitations that had gone out. And so you would respond to that because then the host on the day of the banquet would slaughter all of these animals and prepare this big feast, and you wanted to have an accurate count. So this is basically what we do with wedding reception RSVPs, right? Where that bride, and the parents of that bride in particular, wanna know whether you're gonna be there, because it's gonna cost them something for you to be there feasting with them. So that, that, that's one reason these are a big deal. The, the other reason the invitations were such a big deal have to do with the way that honor and shame worked in this world. So meals were, were, were the place where, and, and this, this context in which all of social relationships took place. It was sort of like a microcosm of the way that you interacted with people. And so uh, extending and accepting or rejecting invitations was a huge deal. And uh, part of the reason for that was this close association between table fellowship and holiness. So in other words, there were certain people that you could eat with that wouldn't in any way make you unclean, that actually might bolster your image as well. You think of eating with religious leaders or people that are morally upstanding. There are people that you were supposed to eat with. 
But then there were definitely those people that you weren't supposed to eat with. Those were people like tax collectors, people that were sinners, people that were considered unclean. And so the, the point is that these invitations are a big deal. And that's why the rejection of them by these three people in this parable is such a big deal. So the, the, the feast is ready, the invitations go out, and the excuses begin, right? And I think uh, when you read these on the surface, they, they, they seem like maybe plausible, legitimate ex, uh, excuses. Uh, you dig in a little bit though, you find out, no, these are actually really lame excuses. So we're gonna look at each of them. First is this field. A guy buys a field, he needs to go check it out. You think that's a legitimate reason, right? Wrong, because he would have gone out to survey this land well before he purchased it. He would know every square inch of it. So this is not a legitimate excuse to not go to this banquet. It's the same story with this man and his oxen. You would never buy this five yoke of oxen before having examined them. He would have tested them. His entire livelihood probably depended upon these oxen being good. And so he would never have done something like that. So the, those two uh, are, are illegitimate excuses. But what about this last one though? Like if any of them have some sort of plausible uh, reason for, for rejecting this invitation, this one might. But this guy says, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. I go, what's wrong with this, right? Like I, I mean, marriage is important, right? Here's the, uh, here, here the, here's the problem with it. It's not as though he married her that day, right? Um, and and th there's no way that a town would ever have had two big festivals like this at the same time. Because if he was talking about missing it for his wedding, legit, right? Uh, the other problem with this is that he had already accepted the initial invitation. That invitation had gone out to him and he had said yes, but now he's acting as though he's unable to do it. So here's the point. These are all lame excuses and what they are at the end of the day is a rejection of the host. It's a picture of what we do in our sin. And one huge point of this parable is really that this is a warning against rejecting the invitation. So, so here's the thing I want us to see though. Even here, even in the face of this rejection and ridicule by these three people, you see that God remains a yearning host. And this is why then he sends his servant back out to find people who will come, who will accept the invitation to the banquet. Okay, so here's the question for us. What does this have to do with our mission in the world? Why is it so important that we see God as a yearning host? Well, here's why. Because if we imagine God to be maybe reluctantly extending this invitation to our neighbors, or even being just indifferent to our neighbors and our friends, then it's likely that's gonna be our attitude as well. There's no way that we're gonna develop a heart for our neighbors if we think that God is indifferent towards them. The beautiful thing about this parable is that this is not who God is as a host. He's one who yearns for and desires that people would come into his banquet, that his house would be filled. We've got to know and believe that to be true if we're gonna be a part of his work in this world. So that's the first thing we need to see, that, that God is yearning host. Here's the second. In order to extend the welcome of the gospel, we need to see the world and our neighbors as desired guests, as desired guests. And, and this follows from God being a yearning host. It, he, he's a yearning host because he deeply desires the world and our neighbors. 
And the way that you see that in this parable is the way this master of the banquet responds after having been rejected. He, what he does is he invites these people that would have been totally unexpected guests. So the first are in verse 21, he says this, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. This is a way to talk about those who were the outcasts of Israel. These were people who, who would have been considered unclean and they definitely were not the kind of people that you would have wanted at your table, especially for a, for a, a banquet like this. This is how you would feel about that, right? This, people coming in, you'd be upset about it, right? Uh, so the servant says, we've actually already done that. Those people are here. They are in your house, in this banquet room, and there is still more room. And so the master says this in verse 23. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Okay, so who's he talking about here? Well, to talk about going out to the highways and the hedges was to go outside of the city. It was to go outside of, uh, of the city, which is to go to the non-Jewish Gentiles. And so on the one hand, uh, these people shouldn't have been considered uh, unexpected guests. Because God's plan from the start had always been that, that salvation was going to come to Israel and through Israel, but then salvation would go to the ends of the earth. That's why uh, Israel was to be called or was to be a light to the nations and so that, that was the plan from the start. What had happened in reality, though, is that over time, Israel had rejected this calling. They had failed over and over at it and instead had turned inward. And so by the time that Jesus comes, Israel, led by these religious leaders of the day, despised their neighbors. And that's part of what you see uh, in this parable. It's part of the reason why the religious leaders of the day would have been showed, so jarred by what Jesus says by inviting these people. And so part of what Jesus does here is he exposes the, the sense of entitlement, the sense of pride, the sense of presumption. Really, it, it's a sense of self-righteousness that these religious leaders had, and it shows specifically in their lack of love for their neighbors. He's saying, do you know why it makes you so uncomfortable to think about these people being at the banquet? Do you know why it makes you squirm and why it's so unthinkable that I would desire these guests to be in my house? The reason for it is because you've lost sight of the grace that you've been shown. On some level, what you think, the reason that you don't want these people here is that you think your sin isn't as bad as theirs. And so rather than inviting them, going out to them and bringing them in as you were called to, what you're doing now is setting things up to keep them out and you've lost sight of the heart of your God as a yearning host who desires your neighbors, who longs for them to come into his house so that he can lavish his grace upon them just as he lavished his grace upon you. So what does this mean for us? Here's the question I want you to think about. Who are the people in your life, in your neighborhood, on your street, in our city, that if they showed up at Trinity, would make you uncomfortable. Now turn to your neighbor and say that. No, I'm just saying, don't do that. But think about that. Think about the people that, that if I said, God desires them, God wants them to come into his banquet, it would actually make you uncomfortable. 
it would make you squirm to think that and you would immediately want to start qualifying. Well, it doesn't mean that we accept everything that they say or do or the way of their lifestyle or anything. Those are the people that we're talking about. One of my uh, friends in my pastor's cohort was praying for me and, and for our church a few years back at one of our reunions. And one of the things that he prayed is for God to bring all the wrong people. See, part of what you and I need to see and know is that God longs for all the wrong people. He longs for that wife and mother next door who's drunk every day by mid-afternoon. He longs for the, the parent at your kid's football game who is yelling curse words at his son because he messed up on a play to come to him. He longs for, for that picture-perfect family next door who are crushing their kids under their perfectionistic standards to come to them. He longs for the bully in your house, in your school, that is so mean to everybody to come to him. He longs for that socially awkward ex-con who lives in the apartment across from you to come to him. He longs for the racist who lives down the street from you to come to him. He longs for the one who is absolutely certain that Trump won the 2020 election and he longs for the one who has all the Beto signs in his yard next to you to come to him. He longs for your neighbors to come to him. And what we've got to believe is that that is true. That without qualification, God desires our neighbors and our friends to come to him that they really are his desired guests. And so here's the thing, if you're feeling uncomfortable about that, like I am and have been all week thinking of this list, then part of what we're beginning to feel and experience is how radical the grace of God is that we have been shown, that has been lavished upon us. See, part of what we've got to believe is that Jesus really did come to seek and save the lost. And that doesn't just mean all of those people. It means this person and these people right here. We've got to believe that that, that, that lostness takes all kinds of forms and that certain kinds of lostness are more okay than some of these others. We've got to stop believing that. He didn't just come to seek and save those who are plagued by the same sort of sins that you and I are. So if we, if we don't believe that this is the heart of God, then we're never gonna have a heart for our neighbors because we'll continue to separate ourselves from them and do everything we can to avoid interacting. The world and our neighbors are God's desired guests. That's the second thing to see. Thirdly, and finally, we need to see the church is a gathering servant. So what Jesus calls us to is to be those who would gather the world to himself. That the church would be the people through whom this welcome of the gospel goes to our friends, to our neighbors, to our city. And so part of the way that, that, that God intends this to happen is that through our worship and through our life together, through all of the things that we do together as a church, what actually happens is that we put on display, albeit imperfectly, the truth of the gospel. We put on display what it looks like when Jesus gets involved with hurting, broken, sinful people 
and begins to bring about redemption and healing and restoration. And so part of what, what occurs then is that we become that aroma. We become through our life together and the work of God's spirit among us, a foretaste of what life with him is really like. So Graham Tomlin puts it this way. This is a quote that's in the front of your bulletin. He says, churches are meant to be places where people can begin to understand and feel and experience what life is like under God's rule. What a community might look like that really lived in Jesus's kingdom. And you can imagine the power of this. When a church proclaims this great, good, this great news of the gospel, of Jesus's work to rescue and redeem his people and his world, and then actually lives into that reality. When we live into that reality by loving one another the way that we do, by the way that we care for people in our world that our world doesn't care about, the way that we serve people who don't believe the same things that we do and yet still extend mercy and kindness to them. When that happens, it's powerful. And part of the reason it's so powerful is because it's real. It's because it's something that God alone can bring about in our community. So what we have the opportunity to do is to invite people into this feast that we all long for. To invite them into this banquet with God, this God who can bring them the healing that they long for. The God who can bring the forgiveness that they need the God who invites them into this real life that they are looking everywhere else for and yet can't seem to find it. And the reason that we can offer them that is because we offer Jesus himself. So how practically can we do this? I'm gonna suggest three ways that we can do this. The first is this, it's by praying for your neighbors, by praying for your neighbors. So I, I mean very literally, write the names of your neighbors on an index card or some kind of note app on your phone and keep it with you and commit to praying daily for your neighbors. You can pray specific things that are going on in their lives that you know about, and you can definitely pray that they would come to know Jesus if they don't already. And here's why this is so important. One reason is this. God is the only one who can actually change hearts. God is the only one who can draw people to himself and bring them into this banquet. That's one reason that, that we've got to ask him to do it. The second reason that, that, that prayer is so important as a starting point is that it's going to change you. It's going to change your heart towards your neighbors. Because when you begin praying for them regularly, what God will do in you is develop and cultivate this actual love and affection for them. And that's why it's so important to especially pray for those that you might not love right now. And ask God to bring about that love in you. So we begin by, by praying for our neighbors. Secondly, we do this by feasting with our neighbors. So one of the most powerful ways that we can actually extend this welcome of the gospel is to invite people and welcome them to your literal table. So um, if Jesus had a ministry strategy, uh, then a huge key part of it was eating and drinking with people. Where he's described in the gospels as one who has come eating and drinking. Why would he do that? I think there, there are a lot of reasons why. But one is that th there is something that is so personal and intimate and powerful in sharing a meal with somebody in your home, having somebody into your space 
and providing this meal for them. And I, I, I know there is so much pressure that can come with this because you think my table needs to look like something out of Food and Wine magazine, right? This is why uh, Bradford's example up here earlier was such a great one to invite people into the way that you actually live life. Because here's the great thing, that's the way they live real life too, right? And it could be too that, that you're in a spot where, where maybe you live alone and you're thinking, I don't really know that I can do this. This seems something that like maybe couples do or families or something. So let me make this suggestion. If you do live by yourself, uh, maybe grab a friend and together invite some people over and host something at your house together. The, the, the point is that, that, that we wanna get people into our homes. And so here's my, my encouragement to you. Aim this year to have people, your neighbors into your home at least four times. And now some of you hear that and say like, that's nothing, right? We do this all the time. Others of you are thinking four times this year? Are you kidding me? So I, I know that like the, the number is not important necessarily. What's important is this. Be intentional. Set a number for yourself that, that, that you're actually going to, to pursue so that we can be intentional about engaging with our neighbors. That's the second way. Third way is this. It's by inviting your neighbors to church. One of the often uh, easiest and yet most overlooked ways that we can love our neighbors well is by inviting them into this community. Inviting them to worship, to your community group, to men's or women's Bible study to our Christmas party, all of these ways where, where uh, people, our friends and neighbors might get this taste of what kingdom life lived together is really like. Invite them in. Everything that we're trying to do at Trinity, or I should say it this way, what we want at our, uh, with everything we do at Trinity is to be a place where our non-Christian friends and neighbors feel welcomed. And so if that's you here this afternoon, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope that that's been your experience that you have felt welcomed here. And, and, and in all seriousness, if you haven't felt that way, I would really love to know that so that we can know how we could better welcome you. So please do let me know. So those are just a few ways. Uh, there are all kinds of ways that we can do this, but here's what I want us to see. As we do this, we are extending the welcome of the gospel to our friends and neighbors. We've got this tremendous privilege of inviting them into this banquet and this banquet is one that's gonna culminate on that last day when Jesus returns and we will feast with him in what he describes as the wedding supper of the lamb. That's where we're headed. So here's how, here's how Peter Lightheart describes this. He says, and so it is fitting that the Bible ends where it began with an invitation to a feast, with the promise of food so satisfying that those who eat and drink shall never hunger nor thirst again. That is the banquet into which Jesus invites you. The question is, are you coming? Will you come into the feast? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who welcomes us to yourself. And Lord, we thank you that in your kindness, you have called us to be the people through whom you extend this welcome to our city, to our neighbors, to our friends. And so, Lord, we pray that, that by your grace and by the work of your spirit among us, uh, we would be those people, that you would develop in us a heart for our friends and neighbors, that we would see you as one who yearns for their presence, who desires them to be in your house, that it might be filled. We pray this all for your glory and for our good. Amen.